Colossians 4, just a few verses of Scripture this morning, starting in verse 2. Paul is writing and he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also, Paul and his associates, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Somebody say, be salty. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word this morning and for your presence here. I believe, Lord, that when we come to the Bible, that we're coming to an encounter with you. That this is your word and that your Holy Spirit comes alongside ink on a page and speaks to us through those words. And so, Lord, I pray that today would not just be a message, would not just be a speech, but it would be a sermon. It would be the the manifest word of God that we can feast on and receive from this morning and that we can uh, receive these words and then walk in these words. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. Today we're finishing up, like I said, our study on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossian church. Uh, The other uh, first three parts are on our... um, podcast. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, or or Apple, or whatever app you use to get a podcast to listen to if you need to catch up. And we talked about for the past three weeks, I mean, maybe you can even say it. Well, it's on the screen. The main theme of this scripture, of this passage, of this book of the Bible is Christ and what? Christ alone. Exactly. And so we've, we've looked at that. Last week in particular, we looked at how as followers of Christ, What we believe should dictate how we behave. Amen? Particularly last week, we looked at the realm of our personal lives, our personal behavior, our own repentance, our own walk in holiness. But toward the end of Colossians chapter 4, or toward the end of the book of Colossians in chapter 4, Paul begins to shift into a different focus. He shifts gears one more time, and this time in our passage today, Paul is prescribing to us directing us, guiding us as followers of Christ about our attitudes and our response toward the non-Christian world around us and sometimes the anti-Christian world around us. And this passage um, is, is talking about how should we, as people who follow Christ and Christ alone, what should our heart and our attitude and our actions be toward the world around us? And I have to say... That from my point of view and in my experience and what I've learned from hearing the stories of other people, this is an area that the contemporary church falls short in. All it takes is a quick scan of social media or cable news or Christian radio and television to see that a large section of today's evangelical Bible-believing Christians appear to be, notice I said appear to be, more angry than anointed, more condemning than caring, more political than powerful, and more compromising than compassionate. Now, I know that I'm just a country preacher in Belleville, Arkansas, 
But if I had a platform of influence through the broader American church and I had an opportunity to preach one sermon, this is the sermon I would preach. What is our heart and attitude and actions? What should they look like toward the world around us? Because something has to change in the church. Our PR these days is pretty, pretty bad, pretty terrible. Not all our fault. Sometimes media slants things and manipulates things, and there's fake news out there. I'm not saying it's all our fault, but something has to change. Because in a world where there are evil forces out there that do look to discredit the church and to discredit Christ, we often don't do ourselves any favors. The Apostle Paul knew that the young Christians in Colossae needed guidance in how to relate to the world around them. And the Holy Spirit knows that believers in the 21st century need to the same guidance, and that's why he put this in the Bible. And if we don't follow that guidance of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul's words, we too can fall prey to the trap that the church has fallen into many times over its 2,000-year history. This isn't the first time in history that sections of the church have lost their way and have misrepresented Christ to the world. We hear a lot today in the church world about a concern for the young generations and how they are falling away from the faith and turning away from Christ. And I believe that the primary reason this happens is not because they fail to hear what the church says. There's never been a time in history when the church has had more access to means of communication than it does now through television and, and, and internet and, and apps and social media and live video streaming and all that. There's never been a time when the church was more apt to communicate the gospel. It's not, they're not falling away because we're not getting the message out. The message is out there. I believe many in this next generation have turned away, not because they didn't hear what the church has to say, but because they watched what the church has done. They've heard Christian words, but they haven't observed Christian behavior. And therefore, Christian words fall on deaf ears. And this is not the first time, like I said, that's happened in history. I came across this week an interesting quote that I want to share with you. But the background is, in 1818, a man named Frederick Douglass was born a slave in Maryland. He was separated from his mother as an infant before he was even weaned. He was fortunate enough to be given uh, lessons as a teenage boy in how to read and write. But tutoring was cut short when his master decided that an education of black slaves would lead them to desire freedom. So his master even prohibited him from learning to read the Bible. He became, though, largely self-taught. He would sneak in uh, uh, books and magazines and different things and newspapers. And as a young adult, as he had learnt, taught himself to read, he began teaching other slaves how to write and read during a Sunday Bible school. But when white slave owners learned of these lessons, they raided the Sunday school, beating the students with clubs and throwing stones at them. Then in the 1830s, early 1830s, his new master beat him so regularly that his wounds never had time to fully heal. For years, he had open wounds. All of the men and women in his life that denied Frederick Douglass his full rights as a human were self-professing, Bible-believing Christians. 
Finally, in 1838, Douglas escaped from slavery to the North, and he eventually became a great writer, politician, and abolitionist. Frederick Douglass was frequently critical of the type of Christianity he witnessed as a slave. And in 1845, he wrote these words. It's a long quote. It'll be on the screen. He says, Some may suppose me as an opponent to all religion. What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive one as good, pure, and holy, it is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. The world sees our behavior as Christians, sees when our behavior as Christians is not consistent with what we say we believe as Christians. The world notices when what Christians do does not align with what Christ has said. We are, after all, Christians, Christians, Christians. That word means followers of Christ, people who seek to be imitators of Christ, people who desire to live like Christ, Christians. So Christians and Christianity that does not look like, sound like, walk like, talk like, act like Christ is inconsistent, incomplete unattractive, and unacceptable. This is why Mahatma Gandhi would famously say, I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. People take notice when Christian behavior is inconsistent with Christian belief. Jesus knew that. That's why he told his followers in John 13, the world will know you are my disciples by how you love. Paul is writing his closing remarks to the Colossians, and he's reminding them, he says, the world is watching you. Outsiders is the word he uses, watching you. Your pagan neighbors, your political leaders in your city, the sinners in your city, they're all watching what you do as Christians. So it's important that you conduct yourselves in a way that communicates the love and truth of Christ and Christ alone. See, your personal walk of holiness is not really about you. Your personal walk with the Lord is really about what the world sees and the witness that you have and the testimony you have for Christianity. Paul gives them in this last few verses of, of Colossians, he gives them a few admonitions, two admonitions that are guiding principles that should, that should lead and guide us in our approach toward the world around us. He says two things, be prayerful and be wise. The first one, be prayerful. Verse 2, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. As followers of Christ, our attitude of the world should be informed in the prayer closet and not by Fox News. As followers of Christ, our outlook toward the world should be forged in the fires of prayer 
and not by the fiery words of celebrity preachers looking for a Twitter following, a book deal, and an invitation to visit with powerful politicians. This is why Jesus said crazy things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because Jesus knows that if you actually went to the prayer closet and you took that person you don't like with you, if you went to the prayer closet and you took that, that bitterness and that unforgiveness that you're carrying with you, if you went to the prayer closet and when you went, you took that bias and that prejudice that you have with you, if you pray for someone long enough, your attitude toward them has to change. Your outlook on them has to change. And so Paul says, be steadfast in prayer. Steadfast prayer is not just cutesy little prayers. It's the kind of prayer that asks God to help you set aside your bias of your upbringing, prejudices from the generation before you, and it asks God to just help you love people who are hard to love. Steadfast prayer is not, now I lay me down to sleep. Steadfast prayer is not, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That's not steadfast prayer. One translation calls it earnest prayer. It means the prayer that takes work. It means the prayer that's hard. The kind of prayer that prays when you don't want to. The kind of prayer that tells your offended heart and your flesh to shut up. I'm praying. The kind of prayer that knows my heart is wrong and needs it to be changed. And the only way it can be changed is by a touch from God. It's the kind of prayer that prays when I don't really like that person. It's the kind of prayer that prays for my enemies and the ones that don't look like me or talk like me or live like me or believe like me. It's the kind of prayer that says, God, I do not like this person. God, I do not like what they stand for. I don't like how they vote. I don't like what they post. I don't like how they talk. And I really want to pray that you would just send down fire on that person, God, in judgment. But I know what I should be praying is that my heart toward that person would change. It's the kind of prayer that says, Lord, give me your eyes to see that person. Lord, give me your heart to love those people. Lord, give me your hands and feet to reach that group. It's the kind of prayer that's not easy, that takes time, it takes work. It's a crucifying of the flesh. It's a, it's a circumcision of the heart. It's a cutting away of ideas and of my ideas and asking Jesus to give me his mind and his heart for people around me. He says, be prayerful. Be prayerful, be praying about your relationships with those around you, about outsiders. And in verse three, he says, at the same time, while you're praying for the world around you, while you're praying that your heart would be changed toward the world around you, I want you to pray for us also. This is the apostle speaking. He says, pray for us, me and my associates, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul is saying, and if you're praying for the world around you too, he says pray for an open door of opportunity that would arise for Christ to be preached and preached clearly in a way that they can understand it and receive it. Pray earnestly, steadfastly, work at prayer for the attitude and heart of Jesus for, for the world around you, and then pray for an opportunity to take the Christ that you say you believe in to the world around you. The order is, 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 is primary. It's essential that you get this order correct. First, pray that your heart would be the heart of Christ for the world around you. Then pray for the opportunity to share that Christ with the world around you. And it must be in that order. Because if your heart isn't right first, you end up preaching a heartless word of condemnation instead of a brokenhearted message of forgiveness for sin. 
If you do it in that order, if you allow your attitude toward the world around you to be formed in the prayer closet, you will find that a life of prayer will give you a new heart for evangelism and missions. That's why we take time every Sunday evening for our evening prayer service, because we are seeking to establish in our community a culture and a lifestyle of prayer, prayer that prays the hard things, prayer that prays for people we don't like or we don't understand, prayer that's not just a grocery list prayers of telling God what to give us, but a real steadfast prayer uh, for the Lord to form us and shape us into who he has called us to be, to develop a heart for missionaries and for mission, God's mission in the world for evangelism evangelism and outreach to our community, develop a lifestyle of prayer that leads us through divine doors of opportunity to share Christ with the world around us. Be prayerful. Then he gives a second admonition, verses five and six guideline for how to relate to the world around you. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the first admonition is be prayerful. The second one is be wise. Be wise. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. And to tell you the truth, there's a lot of foolishness that is done in the public eye in the name of Christ. But Paul reminds us to be wise, and he connects that instruction with this concept of time. We know that every life is limited by time. That every hell-bound soul in the world around us has a finite amount of time to come to Christ. And we don't have time for foolishness that can distract people from who Christ is and what he has for them. Every moment counts. Every worship service counts. Every community event we do counts. Every encounter you have with an unbeliever matters. Every prayer we pray for lost loved one matters. Every conversation is an opportunity. Every interaction on social media is an opportunity. Paul says, don't be foolish. Don't waste time getting into arguments that don't matter. Don't waste time getting offended by people who you don't even need to worry about. The clock is ticking and there is a world around us that is about to bust hell wide open. Meanwhile, Christians are busy arguing with other believers and other non-believers over the dumbest things. But time is running out and we've got to get serious about this thing. Be wise in all of your interactions with outsiders, with unbelievers. Use wisdom in how you talk that your speech wouldn't be a roadblock to them coming to Christ. Use wisdom in the things you post that your post wouldn't be a hindrance to their faith. Use wisdom in your business dealings that your shady tactics and failed ventures don't discredit your message. Use wisdom in your relationships that you influence friends for Christ rather than influencing you for the devil. I'll say this as strongly as I know how. We as contemporary Christians and contemporary Christianity, we will have to answer to God for the foolish things we do that discredit Christ and his cross. We will stand before God one day and we will have to answer for every foolish Facebook argument, for every silly offense, for every silly fake news report we believed and reposted, for every foolish decision we made that hindered others from coming to Christ. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, 
we persuade men. Put that verse up there. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And listen, he's not just talking about the terror that the men would face if they don't come to Christ. He's talking about you and me having to stand in front of God and explain to him why our life was a hindrance to people coming to Christ instead of an avenue for them to come to Christ. He's talking about the terrible day when we have to stand before God and explain to him why our actions, even as believers, dissuaded people from coming to Christ instead of persuaded them. The possibility that blood could be on our hands because we refused to take advantage of the time that we had and live and act and speak in a way that persuaded men to come to the gospel that is true and the Christ that is real. We will have to answer for every foolish argument and every foolish thing that we have done that has hindered people from Christ instead of brought people to Christ. And the question for you and I is, do I live my life wisely? in a way that persuades others for Christ, that draws people to Christ and makes Christ an attractive option to their world. Paul says walking in that kind of wisdom means that your words are filled with grace and seasoned with salt. Can you put that back up there, the last verse? I know it's out of order, but Colossians 4, 6, I think it is. I want to look at that again. All the way at the beginning, it should be up there. Just go way back to where we first read. Sorry. It's not Justin's fault. It's mine. I'm going out of order. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. We covered that. Let your speech always be gracious, full of grace, and seasoned with salt. So, next, that you may know how you ought to answer each person, that you may know how you ought to speak and relate with people around you. I went shopping this morning. I went grocery shopping. Kim, you like Dollar General, right? You love Dollar General, don't you? I bought you some snacks from Dollar General this morning, Kim. I got you salt and vinegar potato chips. All right. I got you some potato sticks. They're real salty too, right? Yeah. Yeah. You love salt. You love salt. Good. Good, because I got you some salted peanuts, too. Oh, like my yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, good. And, and some fried pork rinds with some salt on them. Yeah, so that's for you, too. Now, here's the thing. You have to eat all of those. Now. Now. You don't really have to. You don't really have to. But here's the thing. If I made you eat all those right now, what's the next thing you'd ask me for? Yeah. <laughs> Guess what? I got you some life water to go with them. Listen, there's a point. Salt makes you thirsty. Paul says, let your words and your interactions and your relationships with people who aren't believers be salty and leave them thirsty. Leave them thirsty for life. Leave them thirsty for Jesus. Always leave them with something worth wanting more. Always leave them thirsty. He says, that's what he's talking about. You know, scripture all the time, Jesus says, be salt and light. Paul says, use salty words, all those kinds of things. And what he's talking about, he's saying, relate with people around you who aren't believers in a way that when you leave, they're thirsty, that they want living water, that they're thirsty for Jesus, that they're thirsty for more of what you have. 
Salt makes people thirsty. Make your relationships, your speech, your interaction with people who don't know Jesus. Relate to them in such a way that when you leave that conversation or when you leave that interaction, they're like, I want something that he's got. There's something different about him. There's something different about her. I'm thirsty for whatever they've been drinking from. I want what they've got. I need this Jesus that they say they believe in. That's how our lives should be in relation with the world around us. That means you can't be saved and stuck up. That means you can't be anointed and angry. That means you got to be sweet. And you got to be salty a little bit. You got to be nice to people. You got to be kind to people. How you operate in your business has to represent Christ. The way you treat a customer has to represent Christ. The way you treat an employee has to represent Christ. The way you treat an employer has to represent Christ. It has whatever relationship you're in, it should leave them thirsty for Jesus. It should leave them thirsty for what you say you have. And if the way you're living isn't leaving people thirsty, something's got to change. Because I want them to know that people that go to Believer's Fellowship really believe the Word and really believe the Bible. And when I'm around them, I want more of what they've got. I want more of that anointing that they say they have. I want more of that grace and joy and mercy and forgiveness they say they've experienced. I want what they've got. That's what he's saying. He's saying, be wise. Be wise because there's time running out. That every person's got a clock that's ticking. And you're not even guaranteed the next second. So every opportunity has to matter. And so you can't get mad when you want to get mad. And you can't give them the bird when you want to give them the bird. And you can't tell them off when you want to tell them off. Because this could be the moment. This could be the time when something changes in their lives. And your life, even if you're not talking about Jesus or church, your life is a witness to Jesus and the church. Everything that you do. And so you better make sure that how you're acting out there matches up with what we say we believe in here. Be wise. Be salty. Leave them wanting more. Leave them thirsty for Jesus. Leave them craving living water. Words leave them realizing they're parched for grace. Words that leave them craving Christ. The way you talk to them leaves them desiring, living water, the way you treat them makes them want more of the mercy and love you represent. Relate to them, talk to them, treat them in such a way that they're so thirsty. They run to you wanting more. They run to you wanting to have what you have. No bland Christianity of foolishness and no bitter Christianity of anger and condemnation. Salty Christianity that leaves the world thirsty for Christ.